If you have a Bible this morning, we'll be in John chapter 19 as we continue to look through the week of Jesus' crucifixion. And so we are going to be in John chapter 19, coming to the end of the crucifixion scene. John 19, starting in verse 28. So if you have a Bible or your phone, uh, grab those and turn there. So I don't know how many of you enjoy making a checklist. Checklist for daily chores or shopping trips or work tasks. I don't know how many of you just like to kind of freewheel it and just go on your own. But there are many of us who enjoy checklists, and there is great joy in checking those things off one by one by one. Check, 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 cross, cross, cross. And there may be nothing more frustrating in our lives when we come to the end of our week and say there's one or two tasks that are still left undone. And so we are often busy, right? And so we kind of punt those things to the next week, the next month, the next day. And so in working through my own list, I hate using my phone because I forget it's there, so I still use a paper and pencil. Those things still exist, by the way. And so it's over in my office, and every week I go through, and if I've partially done a task or it has multiple parts, I put a check mark. Once it's finished, I cross it out. And there's great joy in crossing things out, right? And if something doesn't get done, I will circle it, and on Thursday afternoons I will go and move it to the next week. And so this is a very busy week for me, so there's a lot of things that move from Thursday or Tuesday to tomorrow. I don't know if you feel that pressure, right? And so there, we've, we've probably all had these lingering tasks at work, at home, projects around the house, or items that perpetually move down our list, being punted or moved or procrastinated. But is there greater joy to coming to the end of a list, going through a major project, being, it's done, cross it off, wad it up, and throw it away. Anybody enjoyed that time? As we've walked with Jesus through the Gospel of John, we see him doing the work of the Father. We've seen him perform the works of God. He's checked off task after task. Jesus is always busy, but he's never in a hurry. His schedule is full, full, but he continues to carry out the commands and desire of the Father. Jesus is doing, faithfully doing, what God has set out for him to do. And in the garden we see in chapter 17, Jesus pray this. He says, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And here in John chapter 19, we see Jesus is coming to finish that work. His task is completed. His job is accomplished. There's nothing left to do. All of the Father's hand had for him to do is now completed. Jesus doesn't delay the work. He makes new excuses, but he commits at the cost of himself to finish the task. So let's turn our attention now to John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. So after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So John starts this section with a transition after this. And remember, we've walked with Jesus for these past 24 hours, starting with him and the disciples eating the Last Supper in the upper room. He goes to the garden to, to pray. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's paraded between two Jewish leaders and two councils. He's dragged before Pilate, before Herod, and back to Pilate again. Along the way, he has been slapped and smacked and spat upon and shamed and ridiculed and punched and beaten, put a, thorn, a crown of thorns on his head, forced to carry his crossbeam through the city up to the hill Golgotha, the place of the skull. Upon arrival, the top of that hill has been nailed to a Roman cross and raised above the earth. For three in grueling, intense hours of pain, of suffering, of agony, of humiliation, Jesus has suffered, and he knows the end is soon. This is where our text picks up. After all of this, John records here the last moments of Jesus' life. And compared to the other gospel writers, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is very sparse in his details. It's really a bit underwhelming. He concludes verse 30 with Jesus simply bowing his head and giving up the Spirit. Jesus, or John doesn't record Jesus' loud cries from the cross. There's no darkness, no earthquake, no temple curtain torn, no splitting rocks, no confession from a centurion, and no resurrected saints walking through the city of Jerusalem. John, you're a little anticlimactic here. You know, a little more spice it up a little bit. Why does John just give the death of Jesus in such a subdued way? Well, I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, we've talked about this before, that he's not repeating the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have said. Those three highlight the cosmic effects of Jesus' death. Jesus' death affects the entire planet. In fact, the entire creation. John is applying the work of Jesus much more personally much more personally to Jesus and personally to us. So he's doing it this way to display Jesus' personal, sovereign control over everything that's happening. Notice again in verse 30 here, and said that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That phrase, bowing his head, is like putting his head on a pillow. It's not a resignation. It's a rest and a trust that his work is now completed and he lays down to die, to sleep. It's resting in reverence, in trust. And again, he, he gives up his spirit, right? We saw this in John chapter 10. Now, this is on the screen. John chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus says this, a long time before he dies. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So never are these circumstances outside of Jesus' control. Look at his emphasis. I did this. I did this. I did this. He's orchestrating everything from start to finish. Up until the millisecond of his death, Jesus is in charge. And then he puts himself in charge of the Father. He gives up his spirit and commends himself to the Father's care. Jesus is personally involved in every step of this path. 
But John is writing in this way not to tell us about the cosmic effects, which are true, but he's taking the death of Jesus that affects the cosmos and applying that personally to each and every one of us. Jesus, or John wants to bring the death of Jesus home to each individual. He doesn't ignore these things that are outside of our control, but he wants to see that the impact and necessity of Jesus' death is for you and for me. John is writing his gospel as a passion argument for you to look on Jesus, to believe in him and live. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, not only of the world, but for you, your Savior. He has eternal life. He has full life within him for those who trust and follow. He wants you to know, for you to believe. And throughout John's argument, he's making this uh, argument here that Jesus worked to bring salvation to all who believe in him, all who trust, and all who trust and believe and obey will be children of God. All the work that Jesus has done throughout his life is now culminating here on the cross for your salvation. And he says it's done, it's completed, it's accomplished, it's ended. He records this so that we would live and believe. And in believing, he means that we are to trust and to rest. We trust and we rest in Christ's work. So three applications here that we are to trust. So three aspects of our belief in Jesus. So number one, John is calling us to trust the witness to Christ's work. He's telling us to trust the witness to Christ's work. In verse 35, John kind of gives this commentary about his record of Jesus' death. It's like a footnote that John adds in here. It's kind of strange. It kind of breaks the flow of thought. But in verse 35, he says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. And so we see John will give two witnesses here. First of all, it's his own witness. John's witness is personal. John the Apostle sees everything that's going on. He is there. Several times throughout the book, he shows himself in the story. He says, I was there in the room. We may say today, well, pics and it didn't happen. If you didn't post it to Instagram, that never really occurred. Well, John doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't have social media. But basically, if he didn't see it, if he didn't write it down, it didn't happen. This is what John is doing. He's recording his testimony. If he would have had a smartphone, he'd have been streaming this all the time. You can see his testimony in his first letter. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-3. through 3. And this will be on the screen as well. John gives this testimony in the first part of his letter. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you may too have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See the emphasis on the physical senses? I heard, I saw, I touched, I was there, John says. My testimony is reliable. It is accurate. It is true. And so if you're skeptical about that this morning, if you have doubts of John's testimony or for any of the Gospels, I highly recommend you get a copy of this small book 
called We or Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. It's just a brief treatise of why the Gospels are reliable. And he goes through ample evidence that we can trust John's testimony. And so if you were interested in that sort of book, uh, come see me afterward and I'll gladly get you a copy. John gives us his personal testimony. I was there, he says, and I saw it and I want you to know it and you to believe it. But John doesn't leave, him, leave us with his personal stamp of approval. He gives another witness. He gives, secondly, the witness of the Old Testament. He, he gives his own witness, then he also gives the witness of the Old Testament. And if you were with us last week, Pastor Troy did a marvelous job showing us of how the death and life of Jesus is rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to unpack or repeat what he said last week. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you missed it. But let me point just a few ways John does that here. He gives, in this passage, three specific references. Verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Well, what does he mean, fulfill Scripture? Well, that phrase, I thirst, goes back to Psalm 69, where it says, they gave me sour wine to drink. The psalmist had sour wine. Jesus has sour wine. Jesus is thirsty to fulfill Scripture. Moreover, in verses 36 and 37, these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That passage refers back to the Passover lamb. None of its bones were broken. The prophet Zechariah in verse 37 says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Over and over and over again, Jesus is fulfilling the witness and testimony of the Old Testament. And so John uses more than just three simple quotations. If we were to look at all the allusions and all the pictures and all the illustrations that Jesus fulfills here, we would be here all day. Pastor Troy took up uh, our time last week and told us about, about two dozen references to the Old Testament. In this passage alone, there's almost a dozen references to the Passover itself. The Old Testament is always pointing forward to Jesus. And all in all, there's over 300 references from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And John reminds us of these things. And so the Old Testament gives us a robust and reliable and necessary witness to the life and death of Jesus. We cannot completely disconnect ourselves from the Old Testament. Our relationship with the law and the prophets and all those weird stories back there has changed, but it doesn't mean we throw it all out. No, when we examine the Old Testament, it should always lead us to Christ. The witness in the Old Testament is always pointing forward to Jesus. It tells us when we read Scripture, it's always speaking of Jesus. There's no real life in the words of the Old Testament without Jesus. So when you read the Old Testament, we trust their witness and believe that they're pointing forward to who Christ is and what he's going to do. And so John gives these two witnesses here to point us forward to the trustworthiness of Christ's work. But why does he do that? Why does he bring all these witnesses in here? Why does he remind us that the Old Testament is moving forward? I don't know if you've ever been in a big city and ridden the subway, and you go in the subway and you're kind of like, whoa, it's a little overwhelming, and you see the big map with all the colored lines. And so if you go to Boston or to Chicago or even to Atlanta, if you look on those subway maps, you're going to notice if you're way outside on the fringes of the city, I've got to go somewhere inside the middle of the city in order to connect to go somewhere else. And so if you look at that map of, say, Boston or Chicago, all those lines join up downtown. 
And then even in Atlanta, all the lines of the Marta meet at five points, right? And so this is what the Old Testament is doing. All the lines of the Old Testament, all the lines of the Bible are flowing to the central part of the Bible and flowing out from there. So what's the center of the Bible? It's Jesus. All things are pointing to him. All things are converging on him. And what is the the main point of Jesus? What's the crux of Jesus' work? It's the cross. And so the cross is the sign of the Christian faith, right? It's a sign of the Christian church. It's the revelation of God in Christ. Roger Nicole, the theologian and writer, says, to understand the cross correctly understands Jesus' work. And so the witnesses carefully and continually point us to this moment in time. All roads, all lines, all stories lead to this moment. Jesus knew this. One of my seminary professors, he wrote this. He says this, From beginning to end, Jesus viewed his death as central to his entire work. For Jesus, the cross was no afterthought. Instead, it was, a center, it was central to his relationship with the Father, the inauguration of God's kingdom, and the establishment of the new covenant. So why do we continually sing about the cross? Why do we continually point our minds back to Calvary? Why do we continually speak and talk about the work of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection? Why? Because it's the core foundational truth of the gospel and of our lives. This is what John is pointing us to. The work of Jesus saves us, and it culminates here in his death. And we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. This is the task that the Father sent him to accomplish. And so here in verse 30, he cries, It is finished. It is over. It's accomplished. It is done. So what does he mean by that? And so John is reminding us and pointing us to trust in the witnesses, but he's also saying we need to trust in the extent of Christ's work. We trust in the extension of Christ's work. We can summarize the work of Jesus on the cross and through his life as the salvation of all people. And we use that word all the time in our small groups, in our D groups, in our conversations. But what does it mean? If we really to unpack that, what is salvation? What is the extent of God's saving work through Christ? Well, the saving work isn't one centralized task. It's really a constellation of things. If you were to go out and look at many stars in the night sky, many of those single stars that appear to us as single stars are actually whole galaxies. If you've ever looked at a high-powered telescope or seen uh, images that are projected and drawn, if you zoom into that one star, it shows an entire galaxy, a whole array of stars. And that's what salvation really is. So when we look at the salvation that Jesus provides, there's really a constellation, a galaxy of things that he provides for us. And so we're going to look quickly at five of those stars in that galaxy, five facets of his work. And each work gives us a picture, gives us an image of who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, and reflects and builds our faith, and gives God glory. And so first of all, let's look at the first image here, the first image of substitution. The first image is a substitution which sacrifices the Son of God. And so this image of substitution or sacrifice points back to the Old Testament again. It points back to the Jewish temple. The temple was the dwelling place of God on earth, where God would live with his people. But this poses a problem. 
A holy God cannot dwell with an unholy, sinful man. A holy God cannot reside in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation. His holiness would sure truly destroy their wickedness. God's justice is clear. The penalty for sin is death. Meeting holiness in, incorporates our dissolution. It results in our death, a price that must be paid in blood. A sinful people would die if God were to dwell with them. So the question remains here, if God wants to dwell with His people, how can He do that? The answer, sin and guilt must be taken away. Those sins must be atoned for. They must be paid for. God's wrath must be averted from them. And so in the early life of Israel, God institutes a system where God would, or the people would be allowed to sacrifice an animal. That animal, when it was slain, would take on the sin of the person and atone for or pay for the sin of the person. The sacrifice dies in the place of the sinner. God's judgment is poured out on that animal who stands in the sinner's place. Yet, that system didn't work very well for a number of reasons. One, the people kept on sinning, so they kept on having to offer sacrifice. The priests who offered those sacrifices weren't holy, they weren't righteous, so they needed sacrifices. The people kept falling short of the, the standard that God set up. So Hebrews tells us bluntly, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. We have to come to realize that the Old Testament in the temple, in those sacrifices, are only a shadow of the real thing. What was needed in this shadow was a permanent, a greater sacrifice, a perfect substitute to take away all of the sin, all of the guilt, to satisfy the wrath of God completely, to do away with sin forever. And so the Old Testament sacrificial system was always pointing towards Jesus. It's always pointing towards the cross. Christ becomes our perfect and permanent sacrifice. We are the ones who deserve to die. We are the ones whose blood should be shed. We are the ones who should be stapled to the tree. But in His grace and in His mercy, Christ dies on our behalf. He becomes the sacrifice for our sin. And so at first glance, when we see, when we see Jesus saying, it is finished, we can see His physical pain, his agony, his death and sacrifice are now over. The sufferings of the past few hours are completed. He's come to the end of his physical life. The preparation and slaughter of the sacrifice is accomplished. But even deeper than that temporal moment, the physical agony being done, Jesus' death indicates that the final sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice has been made. He's the perfect and everlasting Passover. He is the sin and the scapegoat. No more sacrifices are needed. Here's how the writer of Hebrew puts it in chapter 7. He says, He has no need. Jesus has no need, like the high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. The one sacrifice is now complete. There's no need for another. And notice when Jesus says, I thirst in verse 28. Remember, Jesus is thirsty, right? Because he's physically dehydrated. He's physically spent. But when he's saying that I thirst, he's actually pointing back to another type of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, there was a drink offering. 
And that drink offering was offered to God and poured out literally all the way, every drop onto the altar. So what is happening here on the cross is Jesus has poured himself out on the altar. Every bit, every drop, every ounce is gone. He has poured himself out to satisfy the wrath of God. And he does that. He thirsts so we don't have to. As our substitute, he becomes thirsty on our behalf. He poured out his water and his blood, emptying himself so we could be filled and refreshed, never to thirst again. The hymn writer gets it right, I think. He says, Guiltless, or guilty, helpless, lost are we. Blameless Lamb of God was he, sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He becomes our perfect sacrifice. The second image is closely related to substitution, is one of propitiation. If you need to know how to spell that, look on the screen, because I had to look it up. So Jesus offers propitiation, which satisfies the wrath of God. And so this is a big word, a theological word, but an incredibly important word. This word propitiation means turning aside a person's wrath or anger. God stands as the judge of mankind. His wrath burns against us and our sin and our rebellion. And the Bible is clear that we naturally stand under the wrath of God. We deserve punishment. We deserve death for our wickedness and sin. God can't just sweep the sin of the uh, universe under the rug. He can't ignore it. He must remain just and holy. So allowing sin to carry on without punishment would go against the character and nature of God. So what is to be done? How can God maintain his holiness? How can God be just? How can he love sinners at the same time? Well, the answer comes in the cross. So Jesus' death involves turning away the Father's wrath that was directed against us. Jesus takes the hit for us, and he satisfies the wrath of God because the full wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. Look here how Paul and John describe this. He says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then John in his letter says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So over and over again, the New Testament writers and the gospel writers continue to say that Jesus was offered up for us to take away the sin of the world, to satisfy the wrath of God. We've seen this again and again that uh, Jesus is drinking down the cup of wrath, and he drinks it down to the dregs, to the last drop. He says it is finished. He's saying that he's taken the entire sacrifice. The entire wrath is now on him. There's no more judgment to be meted out. The wrath of God has been fully satisfied. The requirements have been completed. It is finished. It's over. No more wrath to be poured. There's no condemnation for those who believe on Christ Jesus. So he offers a sacrifice. He offers a propitiation. And number three, he offers us redemption. He offers us redemption. And redemption saves the people of God. And so the first two uh, aspects here get a picture from, from the temple worship. But this word redemption gets its image from the marketplace. This is an economic term. And redemption is the payment or price of a purchase, or a sum used as a ransom. 
Ransom, you know, to ransom someone from a kidnapper means deliverance from a state of bondage or captivity. You've probably used coupons, right? You've redeemed a ticket, redeemed a coupon for something else. Or some of you may have had the misfortune of redeeming or ransoming your car from an impound lot. I won't ask for a share of hands, but you know, if your car gets towed, you've got to go and pay a fine or pay a ransom to redeem your vehicle. The Bible indicates that all of us are impounded. All of us are in bondage to sin. We're all enslaved and captive to sin and the devil, enslaved to its power, and we die in its oppression. The wages of sin is death. We've earned that. We owe a debt. It's a price that costs our lives, temporal and eternal. But as Christ completes his work on the cross here, we see that he declares the price of sin is now paid for. There's no more sin, no more debt, no more guilt to carry. He's paid it all off. Don't you love it when you pay off something really big? We paid our van off this August. It's nice to write that last check. Actually, you don't write a check. You just click a button and pay this last one. Anybody paid something big off like that before? And you're like, ah, I'm free. And then what happens in September? The check engine light comes on. Well, we're not done paying for this thing, are we? Or you come to a mortgage, and you write that last mortgage check, send it in. It's yours, right? You get the uh, title or the, the, the bill in your hands, and this is paid in full. But how nice would it be to go and log on to my mortgage website and say, hey, your mortgage has been paid in full. A third party has donated X amount of dollars to pay off your debt. Glory, hallelujah. How awesome would that be? I don't think that's going to happen this week. But there's a bigger bill, a bigger penalty that has been paid in full on your behalf. He obtains our liberty and our bondage with his blood. He ransoms us from the law's curse. Now, we've read this a couple times even this morning in 1 Peter. I love this verse. It says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The price has been paid. You have been redeemed. It's paid in full. What a cost and what a payment. Number four, we see purification. We see purification. So this image comes from cleaning or cleansing. This purification sanctifies the people of God. So Jesus provides the sacrifice. He absorbs the wrath of God. He pays our penalty and he removes all guilt, all condemnation. The source of sin is now gone. But in our lives, the stain or the stench of sin remains. Both guilt and shame come from our natural life in sin. But the work of Jesus permanently delivers from both of these things. Uh, When I was in seminary, I lived in a house with four other guys. And it was a, a meticulously clean place, right? Not at all. And so when we get to, ready to move out, we noticed that there was some mold around our shower. And so we had cleaned that mold and, and, and killed that mold, and that mold was dead, but there were still stains in the paint, stains on the drywall, right? So we got a big chunk of our security deposit taken out because we didn't take the stain away. The source is gone, the mold's dead, but this stain remains. That's kind of what happens in our lives too, right? The source and the guilt of sin has been taken away. The penalty has now been paid for, but the stain of sin remains. But in the death of Christ, he takes away that sin as well. 
He takes away the stain of sin. He cleanses us. Augustus Toplady, his, his hymn, Rock of Ages, says this, Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. So both of these things are true. He takes away the guilt and the penalty and the shame of sin. He purifies his people. The writer of Hebrews, again, he says, For the, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a cow sanctify for the purification of the flesh, looking back to the Old Testament, here's our key. This is on the screen. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, here's the key, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is what Christ has done for you. He has purified your conscience. He has perfected for all time all of us who are being sanctified. He cleanses us. When the water and the blood flow out of Jesus' side, it's not just recording a medical or mortal detail. No, the blood and the water are both necessary pictures for John and necessary for us. Jesus' blood covers our sin, removing the guilt and shame and sin and wrath. The water cleanses us from the shame and its condemnation. It cleans us up. He cleanses, he cleanses us because he forgives us. So when Christ dies, he exchanges our filthy rags for his spotless garment. No longer clothed in our sins, we are clean and washed in the fountain of his forgiveness. When the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 12, he says that they will look on him who they have pierced, a few verses later, he says this, And on that day, when they look on him who is pierced, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The fountain has been opened. We are now clean and cleansed and washed with the blood of Christ. Last, number five. The last picture here is one of personal or family relationships. It is of reconciliation how God shapes the family, shapes the household of God. This idea of reconciliation is one of bringing hostile parties together, bringing people who were once enemies and estranged and alienated and separated together into fellowship and living in the same house. Paul tells us that God, through Christ, is reconciling the world to himself. Sinful people and holy God can't meet except through the cross. Paul gets this to in, in Ephesians. He says, But now in Christ Jesus you were once who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the reconciliation that Christ brings works on a number of levels. First, it works vertically. He brings us and God back together. It works horizontally, bringing people back together. And it brings reconciliation cosmically. He brings us back into line with the original creation, where sin and shame and death and Satan are all defeated. This is what Christ is doing for us on our behalf. He is dying for us in our place. He's satisfying the wrath of God. He's paying our penalty. He's cleansing us and bringing us back into fellowship. This is only a sampling of what Jesus has done. 
We haven't mentioned justification or victory over Satan, or the fulfillment of the law, or perfect obedience, or moral example in love. If we peer into the, the finished work of Christ, it will take us all of eternity to unpack. We must remember this. We must dwell and think and study and meditate on the extent of Christ's work. In Christ alone, he has done all this. And so what we have to remember today as we leave this last point of application, we must trust in the sufficiency of Christ's work. We must trust the sufficiency of Christ's work because it is in the blood of Christ alone that removes our sin. It is in the body of Christ alone that we are reconciled. And so sometimes we forget, yes, we know that Jesus saves us, but sometimes we don't think, that's not enough. I must do something else. From the earliest days of the church, people have sought to add to Jesus' work. Most see Jesus' work as necessary, but not sufficient. Yes, his work is good and right, and we need that, but I've got to do a little bit more. From the earliest days of the church, even in the earliest days of the New Testament, groups arose saying that Jesus' work is the first step, but we've got to add to that circumcision, or keeping the law, or being baptized. Throughout history, we see all of these people and all of these movements and all of these so-called churches saying that Jesus is necessary, but you've got to be baptized, or you've got to go to penance, or you've got to go to confession, or you've got to spend eons in eternity to get rid of your sin. But the Bible will have none of that, none of that synergistic, none of that cooperative language. It is Jesus alone who does the work. It's not in tandem. It's not in cooperation. Jesus does it all. Paul is emphatic that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our spiritual light is begun with Christ. It is finished by Him. He who starts the work will complete it, he says. We don't start with the flesh or start with the Spirit and end with the flesh. No, we start, we keep going, and we end in the words of Jesus. It is finished. His death and work are enough. They are necessary. They are sufficient. As we've seen, his once-for-all sacrifice is enough to save us to the uttermost. He does not need to be crucified again and again. We have no more sacrifices to offer. Jesus drinks the whole cup of wrath, remember. There's no condemnation upon us. No penitential acts to perform. No purgatory to suffer through. He's faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. There's no future sins that Christ does not die for. They're all paid for. Because he's paid the final price for our soul. Delivering us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Never to go back again. He's adopted us into the eternal family. He's reconciled us to himself and to other believers. He won't evict you. He won't kick you out. He doesn't deny his children. And all of these things and so much more culminate in this cry. It is finished. It is enough. It is sufficient. It is satisfying. There's a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins that never runs dry. And so if we were to make a checklist of what it means or what we must do to be saved that list would be remarkably small. In fact, let's look at verse 37 here for our one last action item. If we're going to write what to do to be saved, I think it's fulfilled here. Look upon him who is pierced. 
we can be so preoccupied with lists, either to earn God's favor, to finish our earthly tasks, or even to serve God and to minister to others. But I think we need to put those lists down every day. Put those down and look up. Looking to Christ, we realize that we can bring nothing, do nothing, pretend to be nothing. Looking up requires us to drop everything in our hands. Nothing in our hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. When we, will, when we look up on the one who was pierced, our work is to trust and believe, because believing is beholding. Behold, the one and only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the final sacrifice offered at the end of time. Behold, the single fountain that never runs dry. Behold, He alone as your Savior and your satisfaction. So lay aside your list. Put down your strivings. Look, live, and listen. That last song that we sang before we broke here says, How I love the voice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He declares his work is finished. He has spoken this hope to me. In hope we trust, we have faith, and we glory in the truth that our salvation is completed in the work of Christ. For it is finished. Let's pray.